0: Mountain State Mysteries contains adult content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host Mark, and this is Mountain State Mysteries. Today's episode is a little bit different because I'm solo. Courtney is still out sick, and she didn't want you guys to go another week without a new episode. tell you the rest of the story of a man who lured his victims through the Lonely Heart advertisements, claiming he was looking for love but ultimately murdering them for their money. This is part two of the story of serial killer Harry Powers. Throughout Harry's life, he had a few different aliases and I will be referring to him under those aliases as I tell his story. Where we left off in part one, we told you that police chief William Johnson put out an arrest warrant for Cornelius Pearson of Clarksburg, West Virginia for the kidnapping and murder of Asta Eicher and her children. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I suggest you pause this episode right here and go listen to it. It will help you get up to date on everything going on in Harry's story. Harry is now in handcuffs at the police station, being questioned on what he knew about Asta Eicher and her children. He kept denying that he knew them and that he didn't know the name Pearson. He was shown all of the letters taken from him upon his arrest. Harry said, fine. I used the name Pearson for fun. Yes, I knew Asta Iker and her children. I put them aboard a train to Denver where Miss Iker planned to marry a fella named Charles Rogers. Harry would promise love and marriage to women all over the United States. Three of the letters he had on hand promised love to a woman in Olean, New York. He confessed love to one in New Bern, North Carolina. He told a third in Barkerstown, Maryland that he was completely devoted to her. To some, Harry was handsome as he stood 5 feet 6 inches tall. He wore horned rimmed glasses and he was a bit on the stout side. To others, Harry was just a flabby-faced, well-dressed man. He would quote poetry, and in some letters that wasn't posted at the time due to the erotic nature, he seemed to be quite the lover as well. While Harry was being questioned, other officers found out that he hired someone to build a garage five miles out of town on some land owned by his wife in Quiet Dale, West Virginia. Chief Duckworth decided to drive there. He first questioned neighbors. They all stated that Harry would arrive to the garage around midnight and stay for a few hours. When Duckworth entered the garage, what he saw, he automatically sent for backup. The garage floor was covered in deep brown stains. The stains were dry blood. You can see images from inside the garage on all of our socials and our website. Duckworth and the other officers who arrived to help him search. Walked downstairs and saw Duckworth and the officers who arrived to help him search. Walked downstairs and saw that the blood had dripped from the floor above onto the floor downstairs. There were four cells, each with their own door and lock. Two of the four cells didn't have any ventilation whatsoever. In one of the cells, there was a blood-stained mattress in the corner. All of this was disturbing to the police, but what they saw hanging from the rafters sent chills down their spines listening to Mountain State Mysteries. What they saw was a long rope tied in a noose that was hanging right above a trapdoor that led into the basement. Police continued to do their walkthrough where they found a large trunk. What they found inside was clothing, jewelry, pictures and letters. As word started to spread through the town of Quietdale, people came from all over. Police had to hold them back and some started to dig around the property. It wasn't long before a burlap sack was found. The smell coming from the burlap sack was so foul. When someone opened it, what they saw, with her hands tied behind her back, was the decomposing remains of Asta Iker. Not too far away, another burlap sack was found. In it were the remains of two girls and a boy. There was a bloodstained hammer and wrench. The girls were gagged with their hands tied. The boy's head had been bashed in. A medical examiner identified the bodies as Asta Eicher and her children, Greta, who was 14, Harry, who was 12, and Annabelle, who was just 9 years old. The discovery of the murders caused an outrage in Quietdale and Clarksburg. While this was just the beginning, more information came to light about Harry's secret life. Harry is still in custody at the Clarksburg Police Department. He said that he knew nothing about their deaths. Mobs started to surround the police station. The people of the mob was angry and wanted to lynch Harry for his crimes. They started to shout, Bring the man out. Harry begged to be put into a safe cell. While all of this was going on, the police started to search Powers home. While looking for more evidence, they found a trunk in the basement containing items that belonged to the Iker family. Harry's wife Luella and her sister were arrested and brought to the station. Police questioned Luella. She said, Harry gave them to me and I didn't ask where he got them. In the other room, Luella's sister told police how Harry used to work as a vacuum salesman and he was fired for theft. He was a wonderful husband to Luella and we of course gave him money when he needed it. He rarely asked for it. Luella's sister was soon released. However, Luella was kept for further questioning. She began to talk about her and Harry's childhood, friendship, and marriage. She said Harry was born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 42 years ago. My aunt married his uncle, which makes us second cousins. We've known each other since we were kids. We reconnected and married June 1st, 1927. She talked about the garage Harry built where her old family's home was after a mysterious fire burned it down. She told them Harry wanted a place where he could make blueprints. Police questioned the distance from their house to the garage. She replied, Well, that ain't funny. Later, he was going to build a nice cottage and maybe we were going to live there. Luella was right about one thing. It wasn't funny. Harry's intentions for the garage would never make a home. Harry was a calculated killer and wanted somewhere he wouldn't be bothered. While Luella was being questioned, police were going through the trunk that was found in the garage. One of the many things they found was a bunch of letters from Luella to Harry. Police knew one thing, what Luella said about her and Harry growing up together. The letters proved to them that they did when Luella herself was a mail order bride to Harry. Why would she lie? When she was confronted with the letters, she grew annoyed and continuously denied it. The letters were ultimately damning. It also appeared that Luella herself tricked Harry into marrying her. In the letters, Luella told Harry that she was a maiden and that she had never been married before, when she was actually married to Ernest Neasley in 1903 when she was 17 years old. ironically. Ernest was also arrested and charged with murder prior to their marriage. Luella gave birth to a son that passed away shortly after. In 1926, Harry and Luella would start to write to each other. Through the Lonely Heart advertisement, the letters first dating June 26, 1926. Mr. Powers, you are most welcome and very much appreciated letter received and read many times. With pleasure, your letters are so interesting Oh, and that sweet and dear little photo. You certainly are a fine looking gentleman. And I think awfully sweet and would be a real nice prize for little Luella. I'm sorry I haven't any pictures of any kind. But you can take my word for what I'm telling you. I have fine character, light brown hair, and hazel eyes. Fair complexion, wear glasses, 5 feet 6 inches tall. And weigh 160 pounds I will be 40 years old on the 5th of next month We own several houses here And also property in the country We have a fine gas well No, I don't think it any harm To get acquainted by this method As I would rather find my true love in this way As I don't care for any of the Clarksburg men For my lot in life I would love to share it with a man Whose heart is true And I'm kind of thinking I'm on the right road I'm considerably nice looking and always attended strictly to my own affairs. I have a real loving disposition, as loving as a sick kitten on a warm brick. Do you have a car? I have a player piano and some nice love songs. Mainly, sprinkle me with your kisses and let me call you sweetheart. Are they pretty? And to real soon with best wishes and love. Lovingly yours, Luella B. Struther. One thing, Luella is denying the facts. The letters are there in black and white. They met through mail, and she always had the feeling he was talking to other women as well. Luella always claimed she wasn't jealous, especially in the letter from August 9th, 1926. You never confessed to me how many ladies you are corresponding with. Won't you tell me, cutie? There isn't a drop of jealous blood in my fat little body. But I think we should be on square with each other now. You know the books are closed of the past and the feature that is now counting. Let's see if we can't make this bright and full of happiness and keep all of the dark clouds behind us. Some say that all the dark clouds have silver linings, but I am wishing for them to vanish like dew before the morning. Luella You're listening to Mountain State Mysteries. Harry and Luella planned to meet for the first time in September. She wrote with him to instructions. You remember where I told you to leave your car? On Hayman Highway. It's only a short distance to our house. The third on the left with concrete steps and flowers sitting on them. Come Saturday night about dark and I'll have the porch light on. Come either Saturday night or anytime Sunday after 10am. Let me know just when you'll be there. I'm so anxious to get some of those kisses in real. Won't they be sweet? On June 1st, 1927, Harry and Luella got married in Oakland, Maryland. Luella should have seen all of the red flags when Harry suggested her and her sister get a life insurance policy on them. When the two didn't, he tried to get them on his own without the proper appointments. Luella clearly wasn't concerned as she said, I sure do love that. When Luella was talking to the police chief he asked her if she would pay for his defense she said that she couldn't. He tried to get her to clarify if she would or wouldn't. All she would say was suppose I didn't have the money. Of course this confused the police chief because earlier Luella told him that she gave Harry $750 to build a garage. Without a second thought when asked about this Luella said sure I gave my husband money, and I don't know a lot of men who get married and don't do a lick of work afterwards. My husband worked around the garden, did the dishes, worked around the yard just like my pa used to. I'd give him enough clothes at Christmas time to last him. He had good food and many little things, even cigarettes and chewing gum. We had over at the store, me and my sister run. Why didn't I treat him like a mother as well as a wife in the morning? I'd bring him a nice drink of soda from the store. He'd smile up at me and say, Okay, honey. At night, if it was hot, I'd go into his room with an electric fan and leave it with him. But then, he was nice to me. Luella thought Harry was nice to her, but Harry was also nice to 115 other women. Police found even more letters addressed to multiple women across the United States. A letter written by Virginia Bell From August 23rd 1921. My dearest Corny, your dearest letter ever came yesterday and it did make me happy. Maybe I can just show you how happy it made me when you get here. I cannot put it on paper. I was thrilled with too much to write in a letter. When you get here oh my. Now I want to tell you dearie before you come not to expect me living in a mansion As I told you in the beginning, I am a working girl and always living within my means. I can truly say that I own not any man. I am a good girl, and that should count for more than riches. Oh dearie, I will be ready for the car ride. Remember, you'll be on strange ground. There may be a possibility of you getting kidnapped only by a girl you hope you will like. The weather has been dreadful for the last week. I hope there will be clear skies and all will be well for Thursday. I will stop counting the days and now start on the hours. Be sure to let me know about the time you expect to get here and the day for sure so that I can be all set with nothing to do but entertain you, sweetie. Remember, I shall be delighted to see you, so let nothing stand in our way. And I hope that August 27th will always be a red-letter day for us. So let me hear. And until then, always, Virginia. You would think that every single woman Harry talked to would be head over heels for him. That wasn't the case for a few of them. One wrote to Powers under a fake name. Her friend was the one writing to him. She was convinced he wasn't as nice as he seemed. When Harry's story made headlines in the paper... She wrote to the police with her experience of writing Carrie. I have a girlfriend who was corresponding with Powers. She told me she was going south to marry him. I wanted to prove to her that a man like him could not be trusted. I wrote to him myself using a fake name. He began writing me advert love letters which I showed to my friend so she would realize that he would pick up with anyone. I never met him. She refused to give out her friend's name. But she insisted her friend is alive and well. Police actually received multiple letters from women when this became national news. One of the letters revealed that Harry used the name George Payne for a little while when he first started to send out letters to widows. George would send letters to women saying that a man named Cornelius Pearson would give them work in West Virginia, but at the same time asked how much money they had and what their husband left them before their passing. The evidence against Harry was piling up quickly. They were sure they had enough to charge him for murder. What they didn't know is that they had another surprise waiting for them. You're listening to Mountain State Mysteries. In one of the trunks at the home of Harry, police found a bank book that belonged to Dorothy Lemke who was from Massachusetts. Police contacted the local police and they interviewed Charles Fleming and his wife. Dorothy's brother-in-law and her sister identified Harry by picture. That's the man my sister Dorothy took away to marry. She said he went by the name D.P. Lowther from Virginia. Dorothy told me she was writing a matrimonial agency for a thrill. I warned her of the dangers and she just laughed. Letters police found in the trunk led them to believe that writing the letters became more than a thrill. The first letter written by Harry was found and he definitely talked about more than friendship. Dear Miss Lemke, As I have a little spare time, I will spend it by writing a few lines. I want to say that I was very much impressed with your appearance yesterday. You certainly are a well-preserved woman. To my way of thinking, just the right size and weight. I never did fancy a slim woman, but prefer them plump. I suppose you have begun the books that I gave you. The books were on sex psychology by Havelock Ellis and Dr. W.F. Robbie. The chapter on the art of love in the book is the most valuable. Dr. Robbie, who is a good friend of mine, tells me that he has letters from ministers asking if they would have that chapter reprinted into pamphlet form. When you have read some of these books and know a little more about sex, I would love to suggest that we exchange our sex history. You can clearly tell Harry and Dorothy were more than just messaging for the fun of it. Harry was pushing the boundaries with Dorothy and personally, I think she loved it. Dorothy ended up falling in love and agreed to marry Harry. Her sister said, they had been talking for several years, and that in July of 1931, Dorothy left with him. Two weeks later, the Flemings received a letter, supposedly written by Dorothy. Hello everybody, I'm feeling fine physically, but very disappointed with my marriage. We have completely broken up, we had a disagreement, and I guess it was more my fault, as I have been telling things that weren't true and they were found out. It made him very mad, so I put a note in the car while he was not there, and I simply walked away. It is perhaps all for the best, and I am terribly ashamed of it all. I am going to Chicago to try to find employment. I have the name and address of a lady seeking a woman companion. I will write from there. I hope you are all well. Dorothy's sister couldn't help but feel sad for her. Something wasn't adding up to Dorothy's brother-in-law. My wife thought they were in Dorothy's handwriting. I thought the writing was too small. It looked like it had been copied. Then again, the words were spelled too good for Dorothy. Another letter from August 18th was mailed to the Flemings. This one appeared that Dorothy was in a better mood. Hello everybody. Here I am again. I thought that I would tell you that we will go on our trip the day after tomorrow. We will be gone for 10 months and we are going to be going through Europe, China, Japan, and other places. I'm so glad now that I did not get married, for I would have really missed out on all of this. I don't think I will ever get married now. Please don't tell anyone of the outcome of my marriage plan. I feel so ashamed that I do not believe I could face anyone from there again. Do not worry if you do not hear from me for a long time. As it's mighty difficult to write, but I will try to find the time to at least send you a card once in a while. I will now close with best wishes and love to all. Dorothy This was the last time her family would ever hear from her. It would be the last time anyone would hear from her. Along with the bank book, there was a slip that showed she'd closed out her bank account in the amount of $4,000. Where did all of her money go? That's when police realized the day before Harry was arrested, Luella had deposited a check for over $3,000. Luella told police that Harry had given her the money as a payment for the garage and other items she paid for. Police started to wonder if Harry stole the money from Dorothy. Like we said in part one, he was known to have a history of doing that, asking for their hand in marriage, taking off with their money and personal belongings. What bothered police more than the theft is not knowing where Dorothy was. They didn't know this, but soon they would. You're listening to Mountain State Mysteries. On August 30th, 1931, police were searching for more evidence of the potential victims of Harry. Not too far from where police found the remains of Asta Iker and her children, they found another shallow grave. What was found were the remains of another woman, stocky with long black hair. From the looks of it, she was just tossed into a grave without any care whatsoever. The one item of clothing she had on were a pair of stockings, with her hands tied behind her back and webbing wrapped around her neck to choke her. When police found the body, the chief rushed over to the jail to find Harry playing poker with other inmates and took him to another room. When Harry got into the room, he said, that's the last one, there's no more out there. When police put everything together, they found out the latest victim was Dorothy Lemke. Another victim Harry lured with a promise of marriage and a happy ever after. Police kept Harry for hours to try to get a confession out of him. You can actually see that image on all of our socials and our website. Harry finally wrote out a confession I took Miss Lemke to the garage at midnight and led her into the cellar. I told her to keep quiet and directed her to stand up. I gazed into her eyes and held her spellbound. I told her I was her master and that she was going to obey my orders. She closed her eyes and whispered that she was my slave and stood waiting my commands. Then I beat her with all of my strength. I beat her until she was a mass of bruises. Still, she had no will of her own and did not cry out. I drove Miss Iker to the garage and placed her under a hypnotic spell. Then I strangled her and buried her. She, too, had submitted without resistance or outcries to my beatings. She wrote a letter authorizing me to take charge of her three children. I put Greta Iker in one room in the garage cellar. Then I put Harry Iker and Annabelle Iker into another room. I walked through Annabelle's chamber and killed the younger kids. I hit the boy on the head with a hammer before putting the rope around his throat. They never made any noise or put up any fight. I killed the older girl. I didn't have any trouble. They took it quietly. After they were all dead, Harry dragged their bodies to the ditch, wrapped them in a burlap sack, and tossed them into a cold, wet hole. The medical examiner said "Miss Limke could have been dead for up to three weeks and the Iker family only one week. After his confession, Harry was taken back to his cell, physically and emotionally drained. He begged to see Reverend Ganeer. After talking to Harry, Reverend Ganeer spoke to the police. Powers, who I've never seen before today, I do not know why he sent for me, told me many things in the strictest confidence. These I will never feel free to reveal. He did say, however, he would never in God's world confess to these officers. When Harry woke up the next day, he told his lawyer his confession was made under duress and that he was beaten and not allowed to sleep, that he had a different story to tell this time. I corresponded with the four women, but only one was interested in me. That was Miss Iker in Parkridge. I went there and sent for her. I went there sent her and her best friend back here to Fairmont, West Virginia. My friend, Mr. Rogers, sent me the money to settle up their mortgage and debts. Five days later, I sent the three children on the way to Fairmont. Mr. Rogers met both trains. I staying in Chicago, meanwhile understood Mr. Rogers stopped at my house and asked for me. He had all five in his car. He took them out to the garage. He rented it from me for $3 a month. Yes, I have all of the receipts in my safety deposit box. I believe maybe it's at home, but I have it. He must have killed them all out in the garage. He probably killed them because Miss Iker had sold her property and had $3,000. I got a letter from him in Denver. I guess he's in Denver now, saying everything is fine, that's all I know. It smelled kind of funny out at the garage, but I never suspected murder until they dug up that ditch yesterday. After Harry said all of this, the police looked at him and laughed. They've been through all of the files and have talked to over a hundred people. They knew there was no Mr. Rogers. Even though Harry confessed, he would still end up in front of a jury. Meanwhile at the garage, there were still a number of people there. Some were souvenir hunters taking doors, windows, Even the dirt that was directly under the bodies of Harry's victims. You might be wondering, how could people be going to the property doing all of this if there's police there? During this time, police were done with their investigation and returned the land to Luella and she didn't want anything to do with it. Even though Luella didn't want the property, someone else did. You're listening Mountain State Mysteries. September 31st, 1931, with the consent of Chief C.A. Duckworth, Luella rented out the garage and the surrounding property to Cecil B. Castor. Cecil actually had a plan for the property. He began building a fence around the property, and by 4 a.m. on September 2nd, it was finished. He started to charge admission to those who wanted to see the garage in person. He charged 25 cents for adults and 15 cents for children. The locals protested this so-called horror exhibit. They couldn't understand why someone would want to make a profit off of Harry's horrible crimes. During the early hours of September 5th, a group of vigilantes called the Night Riders showed up to the garage where they wore handkerchiefs for masks and tore down the fence. When they were finished, they piled up the fence in a nearby field and set it on fire as a message to Cecil that they didn't want this in their town. Well, Cecil apparently didn't receive that message. He simply rebuilt the fence. Locals begged police to do something, but they said they couldn't do anything because Cecil wasn't doing anything illegal. A few days went by, And by September 15th the locals took matters into their own hands yet again. A group of 300 stormed the property where the garage was. With tools in their hands they tore down the six foot metal fence and fought two armed guards and burnt down the guards headquarters. This time when they were done they left a note. To whom it may concern let this be a warning that this fence not be built again, good citizens of Harrison County. After that, Cecil never attempted to rebuild another fence. More than 5,000 people paid for entry during the time the exhibit was open. When the residents of Harrison County thought it was starting to become quiet again, with the murder exhibit closed, Harry was still in jail, police found what they believed to be a sixth victim in a black book, who the police knew all too well. A local Stamatis Stikas, a 42-year-old Greek immigrant who went missing in June, but his body was found in a snowbank in site of a local Greek Orthodox Church in November of 1931. He owned a shoe-shining store in Clarksburg, and the last person he was seen with in his shop was Harry Powers. Police questioned Harry about this, and he said they were close friends and that he saw him on the day of his disappearance, but he denied responsibility of his disappearance. Police to this day have not ruled out Harry for the reasoning of his disappearance or murder. On the day he went missing, he had two $100 Liberty bonds and $30 in cash. Powers could never provide an alibi for the day of his disappearance. On December 7, 1931, 1,200 people entered the Moore Opera House in Clarksburg, West Virginia to witness the five-day trial of Harry Powers. Harry was walked in by state troopers in handcuffs. When he was on stage, he turned and looked around to the packed room. He just saw faces staring back at him. During the trial, Harry showed no emotion. Especially when his own lawyer said some people are saying hanging is too good for him. Powers took the stand and prosecutors asked him what he had to gain from talking to these women. I had a lot of matrimonial trouble. Charlie Rogers suggested that I try to find a new wife and try to get out of trouble. I jumped at his suggestion. Only one member of the jury showed his true emotion towards Harry. His face was pure disgust as Harry returned to his seat. He leaned forward and spit into a spittoon as if he told Harry how he really felt about him. When the medical examiner took the stand, he discussed the murders in detail and a smile could be seen on Harry's face. After an hour and 15 minutes, the jury came back with a verdict. We the members of the jury by the defendant Harry F. Powers, alias Cornelius O. Pearson, guilty of first-degree murder as charged in the first indictment. The crowd started to cheer as Harry was taken away. Harry was to be hung by the neck till death. Harry tried to appeal his sentence, but was denied. He knew death was coming for him. Listening to Mountain State Mysteries. Harry was sentenced to death on March 18, 1932, at 9 p.m. Before Harry was taken to the wagon gate at Moundsville Penitentiary, Harry received one final letter from his wife, Luella. She was sick, bedridden, and unable to cope with what her husband did. May you have a home in heaven where there is no sorrow. And some sweet day, I will come see you, dear, and live forever with you. After reading the letter, a black hood was slipped over Harry's head. A noose tightened around his neck. At 9 p.m., the lever was pulled. As the door dropped open, Harry fell to his death. Harry died at 9.11 p.m. When they cleaned out his cell, they find a letter from Harry to Warden, in case of my death, consider this yours. This is to certify that I have given to my medical advisor a true and full written account of my life, and that I have described all of my deeds, whether good or bad, in full, and that they are true as described. At no time during the commitment, of any of my deeds have I felt regret or remorse. On the other hand, I have had a feeling of well-being. I know that I am not legally insane, but I know I am not normal. Usually, I am kind and affectionate, but at times, I have an overpowering urge. Of these times, I have neither fear or sympathy. I am not this way because I want to be. I must have been born this way. I have told the truth. Harry F. Powers. In over 50,000 words, Harry wrote a full confession of his crimes. He requested that it be sold to the highest bidder to pay for the trial and all of the cost of the investigation. I do not fear death as long as I do not commit self-destruction. Those who gloat and the satisfaction that death means punishment for me are merely deluding themselves. Harry F. Powers. <laughs> Next time on Mountain State Mysteries, we're going to tell you the story of the sheriff of Mingo County, who was shot after serving only three months and two days into his position. If you find yourself enjoying Mountain State Mysteries, take a second to rate it on your favorite podcasting service. It helps others find good true crime podcasts. Don't forget to share our episode and follow us on Instagram Facebook, TikTok, and wherever you listen to podcasts at Mountain State Mysteries. For the blog post on Part 1 and Part 2 of Harry Powers, go to our website mountainstatemysteriespodcast.com.